Jack Ablin joins us, Chief Investment Officer, founding partner at Crescent Capital. Jack, the markets seem to be undulating a little bit on the rise and fall of some corporate earnings reports, including Salesforce. Uh, what are you looking at today? What's catching your eye? Yeah, well, I'm watching interest rates. Uh, the 10-year Treasury note now at uh, 4.08. Uh, probably its highest, it looks like its highest level since last October, uh, roughly uh, in line with the last uh, big low in the market. Boy, every time we have Terry Savage on, all of the calls are about T-bills and I-bonds. Um, I guess there is one upside to these interest rates, huh? Um, there is, but remember, keep in mind that it's um, a real, it's a key component of the valuation of equities. It's essentially what uh, determines the multiple uh, that uh, the the price of an index would be against the earnings. So all other things being equal, if uh, earnings uh, stay the same and interest rates go up, prices will likely come down. We're not seeing that today, but keep in mind that out of the, what was it, 109 that the Dow Jones Industrials, 115 that the Dow Jones Industrials are up, Salesforce accounts for 130 which means that without Salesforce rising 11.8% today, the Dow would likely be down. But as a place to park money, just back to those two kind of investment vehicles, at least you got that, right? Right. Uh, For the first time in probably, what, 15 years, uh, bonds are finally uh, punching their own weight. Um, This is uh, an asset class that had been battling equities since the great financial crisis with one arm tied behind its back. Yeah. Uh, and so now that rates are kind of back to quote-unquote normal, uh, I think we will see a reallocation of capital back toward income-oriented investments like bonds and perhaps away from equities. I think part of the strategy that the Federal Reserve used by keeping interest rates artificially low, it did push investors into the equity market that maybe otherwise would have been bond investors. If you see, though, an upside in the S&P in, say, the next two years, three years, whatever the horizon is, would money be better put into an index fund than in some of these other things like a T-bill or an I-bond? It's, it's really hard to say, John. I, it's really, for me, uh, it's a matter of time horizon. So I would not invest in equities, even in an index fund, unless I had a seven-year time horizon, because over seven years, now I have a 90 to 95% likelihood of making money. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of the same, uh, if you think about it, the same could be said for, you know, let's say I have a, a tax p- uh, payment due uh, in April. Uh, I, you know, I don't care how much I like the S&P 500, I'm probably not going to put my tax payment in uh, the stock market just because I don't know what's likely to happen. However, with a T-bill that matures on or before April 15th, I have a high degree of certainty that that money that I need will be there. And so really, the, the whole for, for us, the whole process of investing is just match the time horizon with the investments that are most appropriate for that time horizon. Boy, though, for those of us who do dollar cost averaging, which I think is most people that have any money to put away in savings, they do it that way. But you're the second person to say your horizon ought to be five to seven years, which is really discouraging. I'm hoping for a recovery a little quicker than that. Well, it, 
I mean, it could possibly be. I'm just trying to. I'm just going with the uh, the probabilities, John. So you know, I like ninety percent probabilities uh, versus you know, say sixty percent probabilities. Why did you write something called "Why the Theories of Sir Isaac Newton Matter to Investing"? <laughs> yeah. So that was really. It was about a. Uh, it was about an object in motion. Uh, stays in motion unless otherwise acted upon, uh, and and markets tend to do that too. That markets that are in motion tend to stay in that same motion unless otherwise acted upon. And I wrote about that with respect to the U.S. dollar. The dollar uh, really started to roll over. Uh, it's it will likely trend lower in and weaken. Um, and there's some great implications for that. One, um, non-dollar equities, so foreign stocks, will do better when the dollar weakens, uh, especially if the dollar, as it is right now, is pretty expensive relative to our trading, trading partners' currency. So, you know, if you invest instead of in the S&P 500, invest in a, a broad basket of high-quality international stocks, <clears throat> not only are they cheaper than uh, the blue chips, but their currencies are cheaper, too, so really two ways to win. What does that mean to an exporter like Caterpillar, Inc.? What it means is uh, it'll get a lot easier um, to uh, you know, be more price competitive against their, uh, let's say, Japanese uh, competitors. Um, but it also means that currencies that are generated in foreign uh, economies, as they're translated back into U.S. profits, uh, will be a lot b- better if the dollar's lower. But companies like that need to borrow sometimes, and with interest rates high, it makes it more difficult for them to stay profitable doing that, or at least more difficult to keep the prices where they are. And Caterpillar tractors were never cheap anyway. Uh, what do you see with interest rates? What do you? How do you forecast the Fed this year? Yeah, so I'm looking past what I call the... Uh, electrocardiogram, if you consider that economic data looks like an EKG, where we went down big in 2020, went up big on the rebound in 2021, and now we're kind of settling back into kind of a longer-term trend, we think that the fair value for the 10-year Treasury, uh, which is really the the key valuation metric on a lot of different uh, markets, uh, should be around 4.1. So guess what? We're closing in on what I think is probably fair value for the 10-year um, for, uh, you know, and, and that's quite a while. This is really looking out at economic potential growth plus some inflation over the next 5 to 10 years. We're coming up with about a 4.1. What does that mean to inflation then? What's that going to be like this year? I think inflation, well, the inflation is certainly stubbornly high, but we have to recognize that there's a time lag between the peak and the overnight rate, that you know, tool that the Federal Reserve is using to try to combat inflation, and the, uh, the trough in inflation. And unfortunately, that lag is as much as three years, John. So what we're seeing peaks in, let's say, June, July, August of this year, won't manifest till sometime at the end of 2025 in terms of the uh, you know vanquishing inflation. And so one of the things I worry about is uh, you know uh, a Federal Reserve that has their their uh, you know hand on that knob watching high inflation right now and, and continuing to dial that knob is really not taking into account this lag effect. 
and I and I worry that if they you know they turn that up too much, we could see uh, you know problems down the line. Some long-term thinking from Jack Ablin, the chief investment officer and founding partner at Crescent Capital, CrescentCapital.com. Jack, thanks for your time today. Thanks, John. By the way, tomorrow is Employee Appreciation Day. I don't know if this is a new Hallmark card holiday or if it's been there all along, and I just haven't noticed, but I think it's um, something to talk about. And in fact, Tom Gimble did with us on Monday. Tom normally joins us on Monday, and so he was there Tuesday, Tuesday, and uh, <laughs> it, was the, it, was the, it was the craziest conversation, I thought. We're going to play back part of it on our show outside the Trust Business Lunch tomorrow for two reasons. One, because he's very interesting and passionate about all things business, especially employee-centric things, but weirdly, in talking about Employee Appreciation Day, Tom sort of said, the way I remember it was, employees don't appreciate the employers enough, and that there should be a a mutual appreciation society. He feels that maybe the people a little down the ladder don't entirely understand or appreciate. Boy, did we get a lot of texts about that. And it fell into two camps. Those of you who say, you know what, a lot of employees skate. They aren't working that hard, especially these days on Mondays and forget about it Fridays. And then there's the whole concept of quiet quitting, which we talked about earlier this week as well. There's people who are just taking advantage of the situation. And then there are the other groups that just are so fastidious, so industrious, are such good employees, and that, in fact, we don't appreciate them enough. I got a note from a listener who said that the produce guy at their jewel in one of the suburbs is the most conscientious employee. Don't you notice that sometimes there's somebody at a store, um, it could be a barista, it could be a waiter, it could be somebody stocking shelves wherever, and you can just tell that they're a good worker. And what do we do to appreciate that? And we'll talk about that tomorrow. We're going to be getting Jimmy John's here at WGN, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I don't know if that was something we always did, but maybe that kind of spurred the powers that be here. We'll take the Jimmy John's. But listen to this. Millions of Americans, this is from CBS News today, nearing their golden years are still financially unprepared for retirement, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. 50% of women and 47% of men between the ages of 55 and 66 have no retirement savings. I'll say that again. Census Bureau says 50% of women, 47% of men between the ages of 55 and 66 have no retirement savings. Oh, if we could go back in time and be a computer engineer, an aerospace engineer, a mechanical engineer. USA Today 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 just recently said that those are the top paying careers. Pretty much if you have computer or engineer in your job title, you're going to be making north of 75. Americans with only a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering make a median salary of 75 within five years of graduation. I think some of them are north of that. Computer engineers, five years out, average 74. Aerospace, 72. Mechanical engineers, 70,000. But we love our performing arts. The problem is they just tend not to pay that well. Here are the six majors whose graduates earn median early career wages of less than 
$40,000. Performing arts. Median early career wage is 39. The median mid-career range with a performing arts degree is 62,000. Um, leisure and hospitality. Uh, that's interesting to me because that could be a lot of things, and some of those I think will pay better than this. But the average median early career wage for people in the leisure and hospitality field is 38,000. The mid-career wage for those folks is 60,000. Psychology, 37.4 out the door. Mid-career, 65. Psychology, I'm surprised to hear that. Social services, boy, when I get to be king, we're going to pay those people more. We're going to pay people more in the social service category. Those who watch our kids that monitor foster programs that take care of our aging adults. Social services out the door, 37K, mid-career, 52. Two more. Family and consumer services, 37,000, mid-career, 60,000. And theology and religion, unless you're one of those fancy TV people, median early career wage is 36,000. Theology and religion, Mid-career, you're making, they say, about $52,000. I, I am so cheered by some of the news that we'll talk about in the next half hour that I'm almost suspicious of it. Uh, World Business Chicago's Kyle Schultz will join us, and it is about the businesses that are locating to Chicago that have substantial investments or hires. Is this true? We rank number one. Talk a little bit about interior design. Michelle Rohr Lauer is on a phone line, the leading Chicago interior designer and a specialist in something that they call sustainable furnishings. She's won awards and has been featured in national publications. She's a Chicagoan. Michelle, you're on WGN. How are you? I am simply fabulous. How are you doing? Glad to hear that. I, I don't know that I'm simply fabulous, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> Uh, what is sustainable design? Sustainable design is being conscious of, you know, selecting products that are going to help our environment. Um, one fact is globally, furniture makers are the third largest use of wood behind construction in the paper industry. So according to the National Sustainable Furnishings, that's huge. It's like really huge. And also, you know, another fact is deforestation of globally is the second leading cause of climate change. I'm not surprised so, yeah. to hear that, but uh, are, you, are you suggesting that we don't use wood in making furniture or office things? <laughs> no. Um, it is a natural product, which is great. There's different types of woods that um, grow faster, and also it's really important on how they're harvested. So if and when possible, if you can choose items that are um, certified, as being sustainable and how they're manufactured and so that, you know, if you use a tree, you plant a tree, how fast they grow and how they're manufactured, et cetera. So this is how you became the green queen, how huh? you want to design, <laughs> but you want us to appreciate the impact on the environment. Absolutely. I think, you know, and it's really become relevant. When I started my passion, um, you know, I started seeing that throwaway mindset where people are buying things to, yeah, well, I'm going to get tired of it. You know, well, if you don't buy quality, it ends up in our landfill. 
So it's been a, a passion of mine for a long time, and just making sure that our indoor air quality is better for the health of our family, our pets, and also helping for our planet. So would you suggest then spend a little more money on furniture items that might last a little longer, that you might like a little longer? In the long run, it's going to cost less than replacing it in five years or whatever. Absolutely. And you're going to enjoy it more because it's going to be more comfortable. It's going to be made better. It's going to be stronger. And also, when you buy something of quality, it might cost a little bit more. Um, You know, one of the things that, you know, they have found is that, um, people today are more conscious of buying eco-friendly home products. Like you even see all your clothing being made in recycled, you know, materials of polyester, et cetera. So, and when you buy quality, even if you got tired of it in 10 years, you can repurpose it, you can donate it. It doesn't end up in the landfill and sometimes it can be recycled. And people are willing to spend more. You point to research that shows folks will pay five, ten percent more for items if they think they're eco friendly. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I also compare it to because part of it's an education. Um, yeah, I compare it when I started buying organic foods. I bought a couple of items. Now I buy almost everything I can organic when it's available. So then as an interior designer, and this is your niche, uh, niche, um, are, are, are you promoting a certain line of products? Do you build furniture and office items, or do you just take what I have and help me style it? Mm-hmm. So normally we're brought into a project, you know, it's construction, remodeling, or to do a room, and sometimes we keep products that the client has that are special to them or um, that they want to keep into the design. But when we're specifying, we look at, you know, manufacturers or um, different people that we want to do business with that have the same mindset as far as how they produce product. Um, One of the things is... um, you know, like different products that are phenomenal is aluminum. Aluminum, over 70% of it is still in existence today. It's one of the few materials that can be recycled over and over and over again. Hmm. And another item is wool. And you think about that wool suit in your in your closet that never wears out, right? Well, a wool rug is can last for generations, and it's also naturally um, stain resistant, and it's it's just a very durable material. You know, and um, it can also be woven into other materials. Yeah, uh, my wife and I recently had a. Uh, love seat refinished, you know, reupholstered, if you will. It was leather, and it, we it had fallen into ill use. It was stored for a while, and we didn't want to throw it away because we really liked it. But it was it was it was in really bad shape. Uh, when we had somebody look at it, they said um, the the bones of this piece of furniture are so good, it's so solid that you'd be better off just putting a new coat of layer on it, you know, re- reupholster it that way, then mm-hmm. buy a new item. And we really like the furniture item. I guess that's a long right. way to say spend a little more money on an item and you actually get m- more use out of it in the long run. It, it turns out to be um, a good financial deal in the long run. Exactly. And it, and what's, you know, of course, fabulous about that, you already know you love how it sits. Yeah. Well, we did like it, that's for sure. You know, you're also making me think about a business that we have talked about on the Wintrust Business Lunch, what we make 
Barnwood.com is the website for a company that makes furniture locally. They repurpose barnwood um, and other woods. Uh, they they don't use any chemicals in the um, treatment of the wood, which some furniture makers do. Is that something that is important to you as well? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think, you know, buying things have already been used and can be repurposed or, or even used into a project. A lot of times builders will do this. Um, I think it's very important. And finishes are huge because that um, finishes can leave off gases in your home. Yeah. So to have better indoor air quality, it's better to have water-based pro- products. Um, all your paints today are much health- healthier for the indoors. Um, so, yes, all of that's important. And when we're specifying, um, I just got back from an incredible event, and it was geared towards designers and architects, and it was hosted by Costantino in Mexico, and the whole, th- whole event was on sustainability and home wellness. And even with your manufacturing, you talk about, you know, buying product and everything, you know, a lot of things, water is very important to us. As, as a planet and, you know, manufacturers, I'm just going to say a couple, but Cosentino happens to be one of them. Sub-Zero is one, and there's so many others. They use almost zero water in their manufacturing, which is huge. Wow. I wonder how I would know that. Are there labels? Are there certifications I should look for when I'm trying to be sustainable or eco-friendly? So these, this information will be on all of their websites. I guess so. So I guess if I'm going to buy something, check them out and see if they're promoting that sort of sustainable design. One other um, question for you, and that is, we've been talking about the manufacturing, but what about the style? What looks good in offices these days? I think, you know, really things that look and have some texture to them and look natural and are more organic. They're pleasing and um, and people feel that they're they've you know are how do I want to say it <laughs> they are definitely more natural more inviting but that part of the, having that organic feel around you and different layers of texture are huge hard sharp edges glass tabletops not so much um, I'd say hard sharp edges not so much um, glass when it's used in, you know it can be used in many different ways it can be gorgeous and glass is one of the items that um, actually happens to be Cosentino, but again, there's other companies that are going to be recycling glass and putting it into their countertops. This is all interesting and just what a smart concept, too. Uh, yeah, furniture, but let's be smart about it. Michelle Rohr Lauer is the leading Chicago interior designer specializing in sustainable design. Michelle'sInteriors.com is the website to start. Nice to talk to you today, Michelle. Thanks for your thoughts. You're welcome. Have a fabulous day. Yeah, you do too. By the way, that whatwemake.com, what we make is that furniture uh, maker in Chicago that uses old barn wood, uh, other natural woods, and the leaching of the chemicals that you sometimes smell in furniture. Hold on, I got to turn something down, and maybe it's there. That leaching of chemicals that you sometimes smell uh, can be injurious. Some states are more protective or proactive about it than others. California is, Illinois less so, but it's something that they're very cognizant of too. What we make.com. It's. Um, 
uh, or www.make.com, I think is actually their website. More business news now. Here is Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Upscale convenience store operator Foxtrot has raised nearly $19 million in new funding to pay for store openings and continue its expansion. Cranes reports the funding was disclosed in a recent filing and comes from debt financing. Foxtrot is planning to have 30 locations by the end of the year. It currently has 26 across the country, including 15 in Chicago. The goal is 100 locations by the end of 2024. Construction delays have pushed back some of the openings, but they're still on the drawing board. One of the Chicago area's big banks is eliminating overdraft fees. Wintrust Financial says it'll also no longer charge fees for ATM withdrawals or debit card purchases that result in an overdraft. Those transactions will be rejected if the account has insufficient funds. Other major banks have reduced fees but haven't eliminated them. Wintrust says current technology and real-time notifications have allowed customers to remedy overdraft situations before they occur. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Time for the business of food. Here's Steve Alexander. Thank you, and we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. One more time today, we're talking with Ukrainian farmer Nick Gordichuk, and this is the time that farmers all around the Midwest are finalizing plans for this coming season, and it's kind of like that in Ukraine but plans are better written in pencil. In the morning, for example, I wake up and I have plans for the day, but then suddenly there is missile attack from Russia. Uh, everything stops. And with planting time coming in the next month or so? If it's a attack for two, three hours, and then it's uh, over, then uh, you go with your own things. And all of that to raise a crop you may lose money on, or you can't sell, or you can't even harvest it. And then cash flow dries up and your banker won't extend credit? So farmers have a difficulty with uh, working capital to buy fertilizer for next season. I think some of them will use 50 or 60 percent of the fertilization plant that they were originally planning to use. There is one bright-ish spot exporting. Ukrainian farmers rely on exporting their grains to the EU and other countries. And uh, as you know, this uh, grain corridor, it has been working slowly, but we were able only to export, I think, 16 million or 17 million tons, which is exactly what we had left from the last season. Oh, and the power blackouts because of Russian missile strikes? Last fall, they would last for days at a time. It is uh, much better now. If we have it, we have it maybe once every two, three days, but not every day is is okay. I do enjoy chatting with Nick Gordichuk because in the face of all the death and destruction and daily threats of more, he seems always filled with hope. And in whatever way you can support the Ukrainians in their battle against Russia, you can be assured it is appreciated. I just wanted to thank your listeners and wanted to ask them to be patient and keep supporting until we win because we know why we are standing for our territory and for our values. Everyone has a right to freedom and every nation has a right to be free, in spite of the neighbors they have around. Ukrainian farmer Nick Gordichuk. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Kyle Schultz is the executive vice president for business development at World Business Chicago. WorldBusinessChicago.com is their website. Well, this is interesting news. I have not paid that much attention to locations of businesses and how many of them are coming into Chicago, Kyle, but I guess you guys have been, huh? We have, John. Happy Thursday to you, and thanks for letting me join the conversation today. So tell me about Um, this site selection magazine and what they said. 
Yeah, so Site Selection Magazine is one of the uh, premier economic development uh, periodicals that comes out. Um, this group, Site Selection Magazine, tracks the announcements of investment around the country and once a year recognizes which metros in which states have the most new investment and expansion of companies. And thankfully for Chicago, we were recognized yesterday for the 10th year in a row for being the top metro in the United States for corporate expansion and relocation. There's three metrics they look at to score it, right? How many employees, how much money, that sort of thing. Yeah, they look at it through kind of a three-lens criteria. The number of jobs that a project creates, the number of capital investments, so how much money will the project create for the local economy, and how big the project is. Uh, how many square footage, how much acreage is the project going to be? Those are the th- like three criteria. And Chicago land continues to really work harmoniously to win this award. In this downtown area, we get the headquarters, the large users like Google purchasing the Thompson Center last summer. But then we're also strengthened by the large-scale distribution investments that happen in Will County and Kendall County, some of the pharmaceutical investments that happen in Lake and DuPage County. So this really, truly is a regional win for Chicagoland. The investment is supposed to be a million dollars, 20 new jobs, at least 20,000 square feet of additional additional space. So um, that could be all over the map. I mean, 20 employees isn't 200 or 2,000, but uh, that's the threshold. And it, I notice you're World Business Chicago, but you're talking about Joliet, Bolingbrook, Plainfield. You're talking about the Chicago land area, aren't you? Yeah, we are. World Business Chicago... Um, has been the city's economic development agency for 24 years. Uh, Kind of the legend for our creation was that Mayor Daley got tired of traveling the world in the late 90s and having people only recognize Chicago for the Jordan Bulls and um, that success. And so he wanted an organization that would focus on creating a, a strong business marketing brand. So he created World Business Chicago to be the city's uh, economic engine. But as we've gone through a pandemic, we've realized that we need to be more intentional and regional. Um, that the good that happens in Bolingbrook or Plainfield or in Yorkville or Geneva ultimately benefits the people of Chicago. And so in January, we announced what's called the Greater Chicagoland Economic Partnership. This partnership brings together the city of Chicago with the seven counties in the immediate area. So that's Cook, DuPage, Kendall, Kane, Lake, McHenry, and Will to focus on growing our economy collectively. Um, A rising tide lifts all boats mentality. So do you have a number like how many total jobs does this represent or square feet or capital investments over the last year? Yeah, um, those numbers that happened from the last year were pretty substantial. When we accounted for nearly 500 of total projects and investment that came to Illinois. Um, The Chicagoland region helped propel Illinois from fourth in total rankings in 2022 to second in the Site Selection Magazine. So this collective group, which now for the first time starting this year will really be more unified, should see those numbers increase. Uh, 30 seconds left. How do we reconcile this with all the bad economic or business news we hear? High taxes, departures of businesses, departures of individuals. Uh, How how do we have both of those things happening at the same time? 
Great question, John. I think you can see the businesses leaving, but the part we need to do a better job of, and I hope you and I can continue to have conversations, is telling the stories that are successful, right? There are more companies coming to Chicago than leaving. When I talk to companies that are either in New York or Berlin, the negatives that we hear don't come up. They see Chicago as a connected city with global amenities, whether it's the airport or the theater or our sports team, with a hungry, available workforce that will help their company succeed. Um, It's about us telling our story and having a chance to talk with you and your audience. Kyle Schultz, Executive Vice President, Business Development, World Business, Chicago.com. Nice going, Kyle. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, John. You too.